0: Well, good morning. You know, we come to an end of this uh, five-part series that we've been engaged with on the so-called reformational solas. Sola Scriptura, or scripture alone. Sola Gratia, or grace alone. Sola Fide, or faith alone. Solus Christus, Christ alone. And today, Soli Deo Gloria, to God alone be glory. You know, if you stop and think about it, this final sola is, is really the natural outcome or consequence of all the preceding solas. Uh, this final sola that we've come to really is, is what salvation is all about, ultimately. In fact, it's what all of life is about, what all of creation is about. It's just a huge kind of a sola, if you will. And again it's the sola that is important to God alone be glory that he can share his glory with no one or nothing that is sufficient glory to fill the vacuum that begs for glory you could say and what's striking about this particular sola is is a topic that we've not even engaged no, I've not attempted in this series to engage the an interpretation of the Protestant Reformation so much. Uh, in, in terms of, as a historical movement, what were the consequences? What are the consequences? I may return to that if I have time at the end of the sermon, but, but what's interesting and somewhat ironic is the way in which the Reformation is often interpreted to be something of the cause to beget many things that we describe as related to the Enlightenment. One thinks of humanism. One thinks of political freedom, and uh, as well as religious freedom. Uh, we think of the Protestant work ethic, and on it could go. Particularly this last one, the Protestant work ethic. Uh, you know, it's, it's interesting how that and this idea of humanism is attached to a movement which had its sole purpose as to rediscover Sola Deo Gloria. In other words, what is humanistic about that? And it begins to engage a study and, a, a, and an analysis that could get quite complex, and so we're not going to do it here. But at the gist of it, it's, it's ways in which perhaps all of these Humanistic aspects, if rid from solo deo gloria, become a kind of counterfeit humanism, or a counterfeit Protestant work ethic, or a counterfeit understanding of freedom, and on it goes. Now again, there's there's much to engage there, but to what degree would it be, what would happen If we were to review the Protestant Reformation and all its glorious effects, I mean, undoubtedly, it was a revival like perhaps no revival. It inspired more church planting. Over 4 million are accredited as being inspired by the Protestant Reformation. More so, I mean, you think about that. It's it's unparalleled, perhaps only equaled by the 1st and 2nd centuries. Uh, the, the, The incredible enthusiasm of the church in local context to to gather together and to study scripture diligently to discern faith, to discern a confession, and out of that we have these myriads of confessional statements, which if you think about it, underneath every one of them is this incredible existential experience. We hear of conversions and people being set free from the bondage of sin and there was an amazing revival of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And yet there are these corollary aspects that historians will most often focus upon, which we do associate with the Enlightenment. What's going on with that? I mean, how would it change humanism? How would it change the Protestant, quote, work ethic? How would it bastardize it, on the other hand? If without Gloria. In contrast to with Sola Dea Gloria. Well, we enter a passage that really helps us to engage these topics. And again, this is one of those sermons I wish we had a sermon discussion following. Because because clearly, though, in the most simple sense, the passage is structured as a great thanksgiving passage. But what's really interesting is the thankfulness that Paul is, is describing. He's describing this thankfulness, even this eagerness, this incredible joyfulness pertaining to his privilege of serving and of working for Christ. That kind of surprises me. You see, I mean, in some ways, this verse 12 is the sum effect of what a true Humanism would be a man incredibly empowered to see worth in his work, to see worth in his daily life in a manner that would inspire him and give him great joy and happiness to even do that work. How different that is, you could say, from that dutifulness, that reluctance, that begrudging time clock mentality. Of doing my time, whether it's my time in my life, measured over a period of 40, 50 years, doing my time in a day. But, but this, this kind of notion, doing my time at the church, doing my time at the home, how different. It, it's striking if you just stop and think about this verse. I thank him who has given me, and he goes on to describe the things that God gave him, his strength, his will, his, his, his empowerment, if you will has approved him, worthy to be in service to God, who has given him a vocation, appointed him in a specific service. And I could take this passage, and clearly this could be a great passage, as we want it to be even, for the sake of its being true to it, on a kind of seminar that we could offer here next weekend on rediscovering your work. But then what is added to it is this incredible, very deeply personal, existential journey of a man who had once lost his humanism and his humanity. A man who had come to the bottom of the pit of self-loathing. Who discovered in himself a sin and an immorality and a brokenness that then begged not for secular humanism, but for divine humanism that leads him to think about God and this incredible doxology of the glory of God in Jesus Christ revealed through the gospel. Well, that's basically the thesis of this sermon. Is to help us rediscover that, for those of you who are engaged in some of the outside of this room, sort of conversation about Protestantism and, and themes of that matter and enlightenment, I think you'll find a lot of segues to that conversation as well. But we're going to have to focus on, on what we have here to do in 35, 40 minutes. But let's pray before we do it. So, Father, we thank you for just the surprising, dare I say, power of your word. Uh, Why, after so many years, am I still surprised? Are we still surprised at the profundity of your scripture? And so, Lord, help it to be known in our hearts, though, not in an academic way, not in just learning new facts and aha moments, but, Lord, help this to transform our, our lives, even our work. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Well, as I've mentioned, we've, I've already alluded to this sort of three-fold outline that I'm going to take in the sermon. You know, this idea of Paul, first of all, in verse 12, he's, his thankful eagerness. And I'll contrast that with dutifulness or begrudgingly service to God. Again, let me read it. I thank him who has given me strength. Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointed me to his service. There are these three thanksgivings, and I don't want to take much time on this. But first, you can see him thanking Christ Jesus our Lord who has given me strength. That is to say, you've given me gifts, you've given me ability, you've given me internal desire. What's often known as an internal sense of calling. Calling relative to who he is, rediscovered in the gospel set free in the gospel to be deeply and fully equipped as a human to serve God. And he's thankful for this. Now, I confess there are days when I, and maybe I'm sure you do, there are days when I just wish I didn't have this gift. (laughs) There are days when, and I can start telling you where those particular kinds of gifts and those particular kinds of callings translate into even in the life of this church, which is my calling, obviously. <laughs> and I know you can do the same. Days would we'd want to retire from our gifts and leave our gifts behind. And he's yet, I'm just struck. I'm, I'm nerved by his thankfulness for it. And then secondly, he talks about how it is that he considered him faithful. Now, what does this mean? That is, to be as judged by God as worthy to whatever call he's been given. Now, that, of course, begs the question, on the basis of what? How did he discern that call? Well, most theologians will describe this in the context of the laying on of hands, of course, which comes through a, a, a process in the context of his service as an apostle, but you would have your own and your own vocations, that you don't self-appoint yourself to any vocation, ultimately. You are approved for that vocation by those who have been somehow authorized, even if it's a populist movement, the popular crowds, I guess, but but somehow you find yourself to be approved. Here, though, God, I mean, Paul, understanding in his theology of the world, and of course, as we're going to see in the gospel, he's referencing this idea of how it was that Christ called him and gave him the worthiness, if you will, in his newfound status with God, now as a justified sinner. But also, you could begin to describe those aspects of Paul that evidently were just, are going to be described only at a verse a couple of chapters later, in 1 um, Timothy, related to the calling of ministry, and the kind of personal characteristics that that must involve, the kinds of skill sets that that must involve as approved by those authorized by God to bind and loose the kingdom on earth as it is in heaven which we know to be the church and that's going to certainly play out and again I'm not going I could take a sermon on that and trace the apostolic succession doctrine as to the laying on of the hands and how it is that that is this this idea of being approved and submitting to one one another submitting to Christ as the Christ Church. Ah, that's a sermon right there. But notice this language of appointing me to his service. There's a sense in which there's this authorization that came through that. This calling. Now, you can just, you can begin to sense what I mean by humanism here. Paul is absolutely empowered here. I mean, he believes in himself. Now, Hear that without Deo Gloria. Where would that take you? Hear that rid of godness in the world, secularism. Where would that take you? What what kind of entitlements might that uh, uh, affirm? What if this were attached to a kind of rugged individualism? over against this communalism that you're going to see coming through. How would that change this work ethic? You see, this is an incredible humanistic statement here, which rightly and discernibly could could make sense of some of what came out of the humanism, often in coinciding with enlightenment. Again, you're starting to hear my, my at least perspective here. I mean, this is perfectly illustrated in the humanism of Johann Sebastian Bach, who placed the initials SDG, Solid Deo Gloria, as you may know, at the end of all his musical manuscripts. Handel, as well, Gruntmer, and many others followed suit. The scientists who were born again, who rediscovered their, their scientific endeavors, as, as, as Pascal and others would say, following after the footprint of God, in creation, rediscovering it as a revelatory event in their lives and the passion that they gave them to expose God to the world through their scientific endeavors. We could go on and on and on and say, yeah, that's interesting. The way in which work, even all work, became sacredized as somehow to God alone be glory. it of that, It's a very horrible counterfeit. And so here we have this sort of, this amazing thankfulness. Again, let me just stop and try to help you reflect on what is happening here. I would say that there's three different motivations or countenances uh, for service, even to God. The first two represent a very different posture and countenance than the one we're seeing here. Resulting in a kind of minimalist attitude about service to God. Even as it results, worse still in a kind of adversarial relationship with God. As in, you know, he's kind of my master and I'm trying to figure out what he wants in order to please him and just, just, just enough to get him off my back kind of relationship with God. In other words, there could be the dutifulness posture. From dutifulness, that brings you to a reluctant kind of service to once service is rendered entitlement. I'm off. I'm free from service. Notice the posture, free from. What is freedom now versus freedom for? Again, I'm speaking to you who know the debates on the Protestant Reformation. Service feels like bondage and a burden. What's the minimum I need to do in order to pay what is owed to my God? To obey the law. To satisfy my own sense of moralism. An example, who who pays more tax than they need to? Do any of you? Probably not. We'd even say that's kind of stupid. Really? I mean, what are we going to do to get out of paying more tax than we need to? Well, many of us might hire some pretty expensive accountants and some pretty expensive lawyers to get out of paying taxes, to find the loopholes. You see, that's the posture of a dutiful service to God or even to the world. I see nothing like that in this statement by Paul. I see nothing like that even in the in the hymns we just sung. It's interesting, I didn't choose these things, but, but over and over we just sang two hymns that. This talk about this joy of honoring you and this joy of serving you, and I consecrate my life to you. And oh boy, that's oh so syrupy, lovely. And but is that really true? Is that how we approach all this service and work for God, whether in the church or outside? Really? There is this dutifulness, and then there's one that's kind of. Dutifulness then gone bad, called guilt. From guilt, from dutifulness, to reluctance and begrudgingly and lack of joy, to entitlement, to entitlement abuse, to guilt. Guilt then requires that we repay dutifully, And it's to an entitleness again. In other words, pay what is owed so I can get back to my entitlement. That's a kind of humanism and Protestant work ethic that has no semblance to Paul here. You know, when we don't pay what is owed in our cult, we are then motivated to get out of trouble with God, our conscience, whatever, the church. And then when we're living in a church for over a couple of years... We're finding a way to get out of the church. The guilt derived from deuteronomyfulness derived from, can I find a way to get set free? I have talked to some of you. I know that many of you are struggling with that. Note, both these first two have the same effect. This fundamentally kind of adversarial relationship with God, at least as it pertains to my money, my time, my assets, gifts, skills, etc., all those, quote, strengths that Paul is thanking God for that he has in order that he can spend them. A minimalist attitude about service, do what I've got to do. What's the minimum I can give this guy who walks in my office so tomorrow morning I won't feel guilty that I didn't give him some money? That's the kind of thing that that is. What what do I got to do just so I can wake up and feel, I don't know, at least decent about myself? What a Gross, horrible counterfeit to the service that we hear Paul describing and the way he experienced it. An entitlement attitude about my time and resources beyond what I have dutifully got to give in order to pay what I owe somehow as decided or as I'm somehow picking up in my conscience from messages given to me by my church, messages given to me about my work, whatever that is. And none of this speaks of joy. None of it. It's all begrudging and unfilling relationship, unfulfilling relationship with God and with my life. Am I hitting any, any nerves here? I confess it hit some of mine this week. Well, look at what happens to Paul. Somehow, which we hadn't gotten there yet. Somehow, Paul had a wholly different kind of ethic here. And his humanism just had nothing to do with this kind of humanism. Empowered, yes, but with joy. It reverses everything from entitled to God's justifiable wrath. That's what happens next. How did he get here? To surprise by God's sovereign grace and his mercy and love, of glory to God becoming my most treasured ally, friend, and lover, to love-motivated service, to thanksgiving for being given the opportunity to to serve out of a sense that now our service could possibly be enough. You see, what happens next is Paul, having said this thankfulness phrase, verse 12, turns to verse 13, and he tells you how it's going to come. And it begins with a deep sense of one's true self in relationship to God. Paul demonstrates here a self-awareness as to his entitlement to God's, what? Wrath. And his astonishing joy in the discovery of the gospel of Jesus Christ. He then, this discovery of God's infinite sur- uh, so- sovereignty and his infinite being, as he begins to realize that God alone... Is, is the reason why he's been set free in the gospel. That it had nothing to do with him. So that then he can leave us with that final exhortation in chapter 6 with this great doxological praise of God to offer ourselves as a kind of living sacrifice to God. Let me, let me slow down at what I just said there. Let's look again at verses 13 through 16. So having described this joyful thanksgiving for his Rediscovered humanity and humanism, empowered to do service for God. He tells you how it came. And it began with a self awareness as to what he once was, which was a marred human entitled only to wrath. He says, Though formerly I was a blasphemer, a persecutor, and an insolent opponent, he says, I received mercy, but because I acted ignorantly in unbelief. We're going to parse this out. So that the saying is a trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. Blasphemer, persecutor, insolent opponent, acting ignorantly, question mark, chief of sinners. What, do we, what is going on here? Well, at first sight, it might be tempted to dismiss all this as somehow unique to Paul. That is to say, it's true. He has a particular and historical expression of what it means to be a blasphemer was that he spoke evil of Jesus Christ in his earlier years as a Pharisee persecuting the church. He also tried to force them, that is, the disciples, to blaspheme with him. His persecution of the church, of course, is as well-documented in Acts and was pursued intensely for he tried to destroy it he tells us in other passages. And in persecuting it, he did not realize that he was persecuting Christ. But the question, do you really think that Paul then, when he describes himself as a chief of sinners, did a scientific survey to discern who is the most sinful of all for mirror, mirror on the wall, who's the most sinful of all? You, Paul, you, Paul, are the most sinful of all. Is that what's going on here? I'll bet you if you hadn't thought about it, most of you think that's what he's talking about. You know, yeah, he really was the worst sinner. I haven't persecuted him. I didn't throw stones at Stephen. And there we, we dismiss this whole thing. Nothing could be further from the point. So who he was is universal to all. There is what he did, his actual sins. But as you're going to see, these descriptions are descriptions that are used about all of humanity Elsewhere by Paul, particularly I'm thinking in Romans chapter 1 and then 3. These words will show up again under the rubric, all have sinned and all have fallen short of the glory of God. You see, the truth is rather that when we are convicted of sin by the Holy Spirit, an immediate result is that we give up all such comparisons. Paul was so vividly aware of his own sins that he could not conceive that anyone could be worse. It is the language of every sinner whose conscience has been awakened and disturbed by the Holy Spirit. Because we are much more aware, aren't we, of our own sins than we are of the sins of others? And if we have repented of that Phariseeism that was running away from looking into the mirror, so that we looked into everyone else's mirror and found some kind of false comfort that we could find something they were doing worse than what we were doing, and in order to sort of justify ourselves... When we are brought by the Holy Spirit with the promise of grace waiting on us, that there is therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, that sets us free, no longer to be afraid of the law, a law that will expose to us our sin. And as you are a Christian, if you're a growing Christian, you will be growing in your self awareness of sin. It comes with the gig. But it's a good thing because we can do it because, you see, before the law was what condemned us, the gospel, that is, before the gospel. Now, after the gospel, we are set free from the fear of condemnation in a manner that we can, therefore, let the law expose in that mirror, mirror on the wall our sins without fear of condemnation, and I can confess those sins. Paul is here saying, as a mature, godly, you would say, Christian, I am more and more aware that I am the worst of all sinners. That is to say that I see my sins more than I see any other person's sins around me. There's some truth to that if you're growing in Christ. Just as your sins grow and increase, so you become aware of the the depth and the power and the magnificence of this cross. The cross gets bigger as our awareness of sin in ourselves gets bigger. They come together. That's all Paul's saying there as a chief of sinner. If I could take these words, word blasphemer, for instance, it's abusive. It's a violation you would, you would remember of the fourth commandment or the third commandment. It's, it's we would use the Lord's name in vain. I can't remember which commandment. Kids, what commandment is it? You tell me. I'm waiting, third, fourth, three, all right, you're not a kid, help me out kids, you, 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 have the, you have this great privilege of Sunday school, I'm still suffering for that, all right, so it's an abuse of his name, it's, it's, it's not by the way, taking the Lord's, you know, this idea of putting a curse word on it, though I guess that could be if it's really intended, but it's, it's whenever we misrepresent God. It's, it's when we begin to accuse God of that which isn't God. Oh, we do it all the time if we stop to think about it. Irreverence, etc. A prosecutor. What's it talking about? Oh, we do this all the time. It's that We judge God. We prosecute God. This is part of what the Enlightenment did. This is fundamentally in the very essence of what the Enlightenment is. From now on, we will judge whether God exists or not. We get to put him on trial, and we will start with what we know best, which is myself, and from myself, we will induce out of that whether we see that there is a God. And of course, there's no possibility of finding God that way. No syllogisms and all of these rational arguments for God that best can give me, after I'm a Christian, a more more confident sense of why I believe in God. But anyone who wants to know God has to start as a beggar, has to start asking. And to ask, it's a work of the Holy Spirit in your life that makes you aware of who you are and your brokenness and your neediness and the lack of your humanity, not your confidence in your humanity. It's your lack of your humanness that then begins a journey of rediscovering your humanness as the imago Dei. Perfectly realized in Jesus Christ. Guys, I really mean this for those of you who you know, there's some profound ideas here about the way we processed Protestant Reformation and enlightenment. But notice this last word, insolent opponent. I asked my staff, I know Kevin's about to get scared right now. I asked my staff, should I say what this word means in the most crass way? They all said, no, no, don't, don't. And I'm not. I'm going to take their advice. How can I try to convey it, though? I mean, this is Paul saying, I was an absolute. You just fill it in. I was just. And just get real raw. That's what this word is. This word, insolent, is just a gross word. And that's what he's saying. He talks about acting ignorantly. Now, does that make him unculpable? No, because he makes the the whole point in Romans 1 how there's no one who is ignorant, if you mean by that, enough revelation as to be held culpable to the knowledge of God. So we know that's not what he's saying. This is scripture interpreting scripture, by the way, if you understand that little phrase. So what is he saying? He's saying, I was ignorant in my unbelief, is what he says. What he means is, and this is important, against this false humanist, false enlightenment, false a modern epistemological way of thinking about how we know what we know by pure reason or by pure whatever scientific method. What he's saying is, there's some things we know through the apparatus of faith. And I lacked faith. I was sinful in rejecting what revelation God had given me through natural revelation. I was sinful in rejecting the revelation that God had given me through the prophets and the law as would point me to Jesus Christ. I was sinning because I was in an insolent, blaspheming, you know what. And he's saying, I'm culpable. Because my unbelief is a moral category. Again, stop and think about what I'm saying. What does our world do with the the word of belief? They they think of it as a kind of private preference. No, belief is a moral category in the Bible. He was sinful because he believed the wrong things. Willfully, culpably held accountable. And so that's who Paul is Now remember, it's all starting with how thankful he is to serve God. Why? Because it started with God exposing to me who I was really. And my humanism was not really humanistic at all. My empowerment was a counterfeit empowerment. And on it goes And that leads him to this amazing statement of a trustworthy statement. There's six of them in Timothy. This is his first one. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of all acceptance. Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am in thee first and foremost. This is about as good a summary of the gospel as you could ever make. If someone were to ask you, what's the gospel? It's that Jesus came into the world to save sinners. There it is. These people who've come to this place is the gospel is here offered universally. Notice that. It's a saying, trustfully, deserving of full acceptance. This is not just a sectarian idea. This is true for everybody in every sect of every nation, of every cult, of every culture, etc. It's a universal salvation offered to everyone. Don't let anybody tell you that Christianity is exclusive. It's universal. It is something offered to Everybody. And it's free for everybody. This gospel. And the essence of the gospel is that Christ came to save sinners. There it is. And it's deeply personal. This universal offer is one thing, worthy of all acceptance. Its individual acceptance is another, of whom I am the worst of all sinners. You see what's going on there? It's a universal but it comes only by being an individual to receive it. You must personally receive it, acknowledge it. It starts with the conviction of who you aren't and are, such as to be absolutely entitled to a just wrath, that God is justified. If you don't know God big enough that to reject him is worthy of, quote, wrath, that is, his, his taking offense in a manner that affects our eternity even, then we haven't discovered God yet. But yet also, if our discovery of God is that my secular humanism is going to save me, rather than this divine humanism in Jesus Christ, that will therefore substitute for my humanism in a manner that makes me worthy to God, we haven't described a big God yet either. And that's where Paul goes. He takes this language, and therefore he, he says, how could God do this? Why would he save me? And that's the question. If you've really followed his argument, he's kind of sitting here going, why would God ever do this to me? Why would he save a guy like me? I hope you have felt that. Every Christian will at some point come to a place and say, I am perplexed. (laughs) Given now this mirror, mirror, on the wall experience, how could God ever want to save me? That's the question that prompts Paul to this final declaration, which changes everything in his life in humanism. Because he says it this way. Because, But I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief, and the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. Then he says it again, But I received mercy for this reason, that in me as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who are to believe in him for eternal life. Notice this, mercy, grace overflowed, perfect patience, accessed by access by faith and love alone, with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus, he says. And that's when he goes off on his Deo gloria, which means to God alone be glory, to the king of ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. You see, the conversion of Paul, who was once Saul of Tarsus, is the conversion of someone not only to receive grace and mercy, but to rethink God himself and even the whole universe in light of that. For God here, addressed as the king and sovereign ruler of everything, means to Paul that I was saved by God's mere good pleasure. That's a phrase out of our confession. Why did God save me? Why did he save you? It has to do with who he is. You see, his person is directly tied to his work. His ontology to his teleology. You can put it in any words you want. This God does what he does, not because he's influenced by anyone to do it, but because it's internal to himself to do it. And until you discover that God, You will never know grace. But then, too, that God becomes the center of the universe. The false humanism, the secular humanism, makes man at the center of the universe. Humanity, I meant to say. This kind of humanism re-envisions this incredible empowerment that comes from being set free from the burden of being God in the universe. I want, I want you to stop and think about that for a minute. Because this is what I think many of us suffer. Even as Christians. I know I struggle with it. That I just take myself way too important. As, as too seriously. True humanism, the kind that inspired the, this amazing, even cultural transformation coming out of the Protestant Reformation, was a human precise, humanism precisely empowered. Because now God bore the weight of the universe. Because God now has, had in, restored him to who his true humanity is, a relative worth, that is an image of God kind of worth. That I am worth and worthy and I flourish and I'm empowered and I'm, I'm you know, that I feel God's pleasure kind of a guy working through my work only insofar as I'm doing it Sola Deo Gloria, that is to say that God alone bears the burden of healing, of empowering, of setting people free, of forgiving, of everything that we learn for and our desire for the coming of the kingdom of God and our utopian vision. that only God can do this, I can't do it but I am set free now to participate in what he can do and is doing, and what an incredible, inspirational, joyful kind of work. A work not for me, but for God and the humanity that God came to redeem. A work set free from the burdens and the pressures and the expectations even of the secular humanists around us that can say, I will give what he is the allotted time that he's given me, the appointed time, he's gonna, I'm gonna give my gifts and I'm gonna be content with my gifts. That is, my gifts are enough to do what I'm called to do. They're not enough, by the way, to save the world. There are gonna be no other gifts that needed for that one, including yours. Let me do my job. Let me play my part. Do so without the pressure of saving the world. You know, there's a phrase in, People come to this city i 've been here a while now, and I, several come and go ministries and why are you here well, i 'm here to to reach the the movers and the shakers, the gatekeepers the blah, 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 blah. and I say you know that 's the last thing this community needs the last thing they need is for you to come in here and 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 bastardize this for all you know all that 's been given what 's the phrase uh to whom much is given, much is required. I mean, by the way, you need to go back to that passage. It's talking about something else. But yeah, yeah, I'm going to go out there and... Man, these people need to be set free from that. We need to be told and reminded over and over and over again. The, there's a fragility out there bearing the weight of being God in this secular, humanistic way. Set free from this being God. Free to serve with the joy that God is doing a great work of redemption in the world and through his church. We need to tell them that God loves them not for what they're going to do for him, but God loves them for his mere good pleasure to love them. That God is who he is, merciful and gracious and all these things, sovereign and powerful So that not one iota of our salvation depends on God. Not one iota of the the conversion of the world rests on God. Not one iota of the world redemption rests on me, I'm saying, not God. That our utopian vision, not one iota of that rests on me. This is so important. Well, let me just bring it to an end. You know, again, I wish we could talk more about all that the Protestant Reformation did historically. But what went wrong is when all those things that I described earlier was co-opted by a secular enlightenment agenda. Or, or trend. I don't know. Agenda's probably too harsh. And it's, that's the issue. And so I hope that you've heard this passage today as a kind of Exposition of, of true humanism, of a person set free, empowered, with a joy to go beyond the dutiful, begrudging, guilt-driven kind of work ethic or kind of service to God in the church and in the world, but to be the kind of person so Surprised by joy, so surprised by the grace of the gospel, so understanding of the entitlement that they have by their very nature is to be entitled to the very just sentence of God for eternity against us. To have discovered that we are now the recipients of eternal life, of being reconciled to God and saved and redeemed, and we're on a journey to a perfect and beautiful life. That's where we're going. All by God's mere good pleasure. Received by grace alone. I hope it'll change the way we think about, yes, our money, our time, our service. I hope that it can help you rethink about your relationship to God even. To live your life in the image of God. Where you will feel and know his pleasure. Without the weight of his burden. I have some great Reformation quotes here, but time eludes us, so I won't read them. But this is what the Reformers really believed. Amen.